You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Our Bible reading today is Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Thank you for bringing the Bible reading to us. It's good to have it in front of you, as always. Uh, And tonight, there's the question, do you need a mentor? Do you uh, need a mentor? Well, uh, my answer straight up, I'll give it to you, is yes, or at least according to the book of Titus, the answer is yes. Um, That is because when it comes to maturing as a Christian, when it comes to cultivating uncommon common godliness, when it comes to developing self-control and Christian disciplines, spiritual disciplines, the first thing that Paul recommends to Titus is that he appoints elders. Now, elders are a, 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 a particular term in the New Testament, um, which refers to a particular office in the church, um, which is to be this oversight role. Um, the New Testament here, it, it says it's for, for men, um, and it's to do with the, you know, the church community you're a part of, appoint elders. But by extension, the principle uh, can, can be extended. You know, it can be... It can be applied to us even here in this, what we call a parachurch organisation. If we want to develop and grow in spiritual disciplines and learn self-control as a Christian, we need to one another one another, which, in, which includes having mentors, people who can be exemplars of the faith for us. Listen to what uh, Titus says in chapter 1, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. I remember once uh, reading a book about the Christian faith and it opened by giving an illustration and saying that the Christian life is like a trampoline and it kind of captured uh, my imagination. He said, uh, life's like a tra- uh, sorry, Christianity is like a trampoline. Um, doctrines, doctrines from the Bible are like the springs on, on, the, on the outside, on the perimeter. Uh, holding up the mat. And Christianity is a faith response to the invitation to jump. Christianity is a faith response to the invitation to come jump on me. And uh, it's, it's meant to be, you know, try and capture this idea that Christianity is exhilarating. It's life-affirming, life-giving. It's a joyous thing to be a Christian if we simply exercise our faith trust in the teachings of Christ our Lord, it's an exhilarating experience. I thought it was a really great picture. 
And it sort of also sort of captures that idea that when you trust Jesus and keep on practicing trusting him, even when it feels counterintuitive, it enlivens your faith. It grows your faith muscle, so to speak. Uh, while I was reading that book and thinking about the illustration, uh, a smile grew on my face because um, there's another story about a trampoline that also is stuck in my brain, and that was back when I was a kid. Um, one summer's day, we're all hanging out in the backyard, and my dad, who was not um, given particularly to jumping on the trampoline and also had his own battery problems, by the way, let the reader understand, ran up the backyard towards our trampoline and did a perfectly executed sort of high jump over the side of the trampoline, back in the day when there were no sort of walls or fences around it, just on a, a big square rectangle of a trampoline, flew over, landed on his back on the mat, and all we heard was a loud tearing sound and a thud as Dad went straight through the trampoline. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I mean, it, I hope when I was there, I didn't laugh initially, but it quickly turned to laughter once we found he was all right. And when I was reading this illustration in this book, I kind of thought, yeah, I get, I get the picture. But, uh, you know, the faith journey to me doesn't always feel like an exhilarating, exciting, life-affirming, life-giving journey, right? Sometimes it really feels like a land with a thud. Sometimes it feels like Christianity doesn't quite work. Sometimes I really struggle. Sometimes I lack hope. And the point I want to make here at this point uh, is that Christianity was never designed to be a solo mission. It's not primarily designed to rest upon your individual faith as you individually follow Christ as Lord. I find it fascinating, right, that when Paul is writing to Titus about Crete, he doesn't say, okay, we need order, we need discipline, spiritual disciplines to be developed, we need self-control to be developed among this Christian group. Teach them to have quiet times. Teach them to spend the first hour every day just praying to, to you. Teach them to open up their Bibles in the quiet of their study or their lounge room early in the morning and read the Bible and pray. Well, they didn't have Bibles back then, so it was impossible. But that's not where he doesn't start with cultivating the discipline of personal devotions. No, he says the first place to start is get your community humming by appointing mentors, elders, people who can exemplify what it means to walk in humble dependence upon Christ as Lord. Make sure you do this together. And that's the critical point I want to make tonight, is that uh, really, our, you, know, you cannot develop self-control and spiritual disciplines uh, in a solo effort. Uh, just by yourself. We need one. What's critical to growth is one anothering one another and having mentors and leaders who help us do that. And the first uh, thing that uh, Paul says about these elders who function as mentors in the Christian community is he says that character is king. And we'll see how far we get tonight. This may be the only point I make. And it's a point I really want to particularly labour tonight. Character is king when it comes to elders. Look there, verses 6 to 8. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Let me pause here. 
Again, let me say this is, this is uh, t- uh, addressed particularly, of course, t- to men in the New Testament. Um, it, it says that men are particularly to fill this role of eldership. Uh, this is debated these days whether it's just you know, culturally context-specific dependent. Uh, my personal view is, is that um, this is a role that is meant for men to, even today in the church, but even on our staff team, there is disagreement on that, and it's perfectly fine. I don't want to get hung up on that tonight. I just want to say in this situation, which is addressed to men, the principle is this, right? In order to be fit for eldership, in order to be a mentor to other Christians, your home life needs to be in sync with your Christian confession. If Christ is Lord in CU, Christ needs to be Lord at home in your share house, in your private life. Here it says, you might be caught up on it, saying that uh, an elder must be blameless and a man whose children believe. It's not saying there that you can't be an elder in church unless your kids are Christian. Another translation there, another way of translating that word uh, believe is that they're to be faithful. Or it says in my footnote, children who are trustworthy. Um, You can't really ever make someone a Christian even your own kids. And look, sometimes you have kids who are born really wild and really are hard to manage as parents. It's not saying that's not allowed if you want to be an, an elder or a mentor in the Christian community. It's simply saying at home, you should do a good job of managing that home. So it's a place filled with order and love. And further on, it says it's a place that's hospitable. Your private life needs to demonstrate that you are something of a mature Christian. I heard a testimony um, once uh, from a lady who lived in Sydney and she said that she became a Christian because of a tea towel. She was converted by a tea towel. And the person asked, how did a tea towel uh, bring you to Christ? Like, did it have a gospel message written on it or something like that? No, she said that uh, her son went off to a Christian convention in Sydney He became a Christian and he came back obviously changed. And he said the night he came back from the camp, he helped do the dishes. He never helps do the dishes, he said. He never does any of that kind of stuff. And here he is without being nagged, without being asked. He just got up and offered to do the dishes. Dishes. He came back a changed person by the gospel. And that's the kind of person who I want going out and doing evangelism here on campus. Someone whose life has been changed, who knows what it is to be a different person now and who actually actively seeks to love others. That's the person you want, right? Evangelising or being a leader in CU. Because their faith is not just intellectualism. It's not just a set of beliefs they are sent to intellectually. It's changed the way they move and relate to others. Verse 7. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. There are a whole bunch of knots there. And I want to say to you that all these knots, on one hand, uh, they're a very low bar. I mean, is this really that hard? Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. 
It's a really low bar, isn't it? But this series in part is called Uncommon Common Godliness. And the reason why it's called that is that common godliness is rarer than you think. And whilst at one level this is a low bar, all of the things it says here not to do are very easy to fall into. And the longer I live as a Christian, the more I've seen even good friends get ensnared by some of this stuff. I know that I am not above being ensnared by some of this stuff. I think I've actually gone to battle with some of the things it mentions here. I'd love to go through them all. But we need to make sure that our leaders, our mentors live out a life which displays uncommon, common godliness. But I'll just pick on a few here. Not overbearing. It's actually very easy to become overbearing. Sometimes in really dramatic, kind of gross ways, sometimes in subtle ways. A part of, uh, you know, at the beginning of the journey of becoming overbearing, I've noticed this in other Christian leaders and I've noticed this in myself, is when a Christian leader's conscience becomes the conscience of the people he or she is leading. That's the beginning of the path to becoming an overbearing leader. Whenever you're given a role um, of you know, responsibility or leadership, it comes with authority. And when you have authority, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking you're somehow entitled to have that authority, like you've earned the privilege of having that authority. And people should look up to you and respect you because of your authority. And it's not too many steps before you start thinking you know best, not just for yourself, but for everyone. I've heard it preached, I've heard it taught by Christian leaders that, you know what? You shouldn't start by you know, following your career to a certain place to live. And then once you've you know, locked in your career, then found a good place to live that's convenient for your career move to then find a church. No, wrong way around. Our priority is the body of Christ. What you should do, what you should do, if you're a committed Christian, is start with a church community where you can serve and then find a job that helps you live nearby the church you serve. And I'm hearing this thinking, well, that's a wisdom decision. There's no one in the Bible that says to do that. If you've decided to do that because of your own convictions about what is best for your life, well, fine. But don't put that on the congregation. There are lots of ways in which we can do this. What I think is a good way to apply the Christian faith is what everyone must think is a good way to apply the Christian faith. I did this, you know, week one of this talk series. Do you remember what I said? I pulled myself up today as I was thinking about this. I thought, oh my gosh, am I becoming an overbearing leader? I remember week one I said, um, okay, let's uh, open up the Bibles. Um, we prefer to use the hard copy. We don't use phones here. Who says we don't use phones here? Is there anything in the Bible that says thou shalt not use a phone? They didn't even have individual personal Bibles in the first century. Who am I to say you should use the hard copy if you want to, want to be a legit Christian? And so I want to repent of that and say to you, you use whatever you flipping well want. You don't even need to have a Bible open in front of you. I think it's good. You don't have to. That's my conscience that I'm projecting onto you. And we need to be careful of this as Christian leaders, not to be overbearing. Rather, 
rather, is that me? I think it is. <laughs> that rather we should, we should be hospitable, that is kind, generous, warm, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. I went to a Christian leader once who um, had authority over me and he was my leader. Um, uh, I was under his leadership and I went to him to talk to him um, to give him some feedback that was partly critical of him. I felt I needed to give it to him. It was hard to do. I must say, though, that I'm sure that it wasn't completely fair. It's, it's always um, hard to, you know, really say what is absolutely necessary and not spill over into things that aren't really fair or aren't necessary. I went to talk to this guy. He knew kind of what I was going to come and talk to him about uh, to give him some critical feedback. And he just listened. He asked a few questions to make sure he understood what I was saying. He just listened. He received it. And he said, thanks for that. We prayed together. Um, and then he left it. And in a couple of weeks later, he caught up with me and said, I've been thinking about what you said. And I can see in these you know, critical areas here, there was something in that. And he apologised to me for specific things that had pointed out that he thought were fair and were helpful and that he hadn't really seen. And I thought, my gosh, what a humble leader, right? That's the opposite of overbearing. Someone who doesn't believe it's a privilege for you to have me as a leader, but realises that it's a privilege to serve the body of Christ and that is what leadership's about. And that really... The boss of the church is no particular person. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all part of the body together, helping each other live under the lordship of Christ. And so we're to be open to the pastoring of one another, even when you're in a position of leadership. Hosp hospitality, a lover of what is good over my position or my pride. Not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, not given to drunkenness. It's unlikely that any of you here um, struggles at this stage in life with, with drunkenness. But drunkenness is, is escapism gone wrong. Drunkenness is escapism that's grown legs and turned into a monster. Uh, I had a friend who uh, I think... Um, was addicted to romance novels. She would uh, have a hard day at work, come home, go into a room. We, we were part of a share house together. She would go home and she, we wouldn't see her till often the next morning. And she would read, she was very happy to talk about it. She would read romance novel after romance novel. And uh, look, you know, I don't think that's really, it's sort of neither here nor there. I don't want to condemn her for that, but it's, what is that? Well, it's escapism. It's a release from a hard, stressful day. It's kind of a happy place. We all have that. It's a normal, appropriate part of life to have escapism. You know, dinner with a family in front of the TV, uh, going for a walk on the beach, you know, a holiday, whatever. That We all have regular points. My coffee, my daily coffee is my escapism. Just a moment to down tools and just think about nothing. Escapism is fine, but it can, it can get out of control, can't it? And you know what? Alcohol is a brilliant form of escapism. A glass of wine at the end of the day. 
two glasses of wine, even better. It doesn't take long before it's, what, half a bottle a bottle to make you feel really numb to the stresses of life. Uncommon, common godliness. It's not hard to avoid getting drunk, but boy, it's easy to get caught up in this stuff. It's really easy. It talks about here about dishonest gain. We live in a money-obsessed, things-obsessed culture. It is so easy for you to get caught on that treadmill as a Christian leader. But none of that is to characterise the elder, the mentor that we are to have in our community. But this raises a question for me as I read this passage. But um, isn't this a bit sort of hardcore? I mean, aren't we a community of grace? Isn't that uh, what is meant to be always front and centre in our Christian community? I remember witnessing a debate between two close friends. Uh, a, a, a female, a woman, she, had, she was a part of a church where uh, in the last year um, they had had an elder or a leader in their church commit adultery. That um, guy in this situation left his wife, um, started a relationship with someone else. Twelve months later, uh, with his new wife, the woman he'd, he'd committed adultery with and then, then subsequently married, were back in the church, back in a leadership position. And my other friend was saying, that's wrong. Like, you know, why, why are they doing that? Uh, shouldn't he be, you know, permanently stood down from eldership? My other friend was saying, but it's about grace, the Christian community. We all sin. We don't want to become legalistic and judgmental and condemning towards people who sin because don't we all sin? Don't we all fall short of the glory of God? And irrespective of what you think about that particular situation, what I, what I want to say to you is that I'm not quite sure how to explain it or teach it or navigate it, right? Yes, we are a community of grace built on grace. We're brought together because our sins have been forgiven. We do not want to be legalistic or judgmental. That is all true. But it's also consistently the teaching of the New Testament, consistently the teaching of the New Testament, that we're to take holiness seriously. It's consistently the teaching of the New Testament that nobody has to sin. It's consistently the teaching of the New Testament that you can put off the old nature, put on the new, and you can and should grow in holiness. How about that tension in 1 John where it says in the opening chapter you know, of 1 John, it says, if you say you walk in the light, if you say you, know, you follow the light but you don't walk in the light, you're a liar, you're a hypocrite. And then it goes on to say in that same section, uh, if, you, if, you, you know, if you deny that you sin, you're a liar. It holds them both together. And uh, what about these two passages? The one in, um, in Jude, it says this in Jude verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
What sort of community are we to be? A community that says that we hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We really believe and we model that sin is destructive and bad and inconsistent with living as Christ as Lord. Galatians chapter 6. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The own, oops, sorry, <laughs> wrong verse. That is completely not helpful. But a good word from the Lord, right? Don't be impressed. Do not be impressed by people who want you to get circumcised. Put that in your pocket, take it home. But here's the one I want to read out. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Do you get the vibe? Do you feel the tenor of that? If someone is caught in sin, gently restore them, but watch yourselves, or you also may be, may be tempted. Sin is dangerous. Sin is enticing. Sin can easily entangle us. Fear it. Hate it. Stay away from it. And so Titus says, in this particular context, choose elders, mentors, who demonstrate a committed holiness, who can be models of how we ought to respond to the Lordship of Christ. And here at CU, character is king. The first thing we should look for in our committee members is, are they following Christ as Lord? Do they model that for us? Um, let me say two things about uh, John Piper that I, I've, I've always found really helpful and impressive. In a way, he's kind of mentored me from a distance. I mean, he doesn't know me from a bar of soap, uh, but I've read a lot of his stuff. I've heard a lot of what he said, and I feel like in ways he's instructed me, mentored me, discipled me just through his teachings. And uh, I remember um, uh, once upon a time helping uh, put on a, a, a Christian conference, and for one reason or another, we had to uh, get this speaker from this certain place, and it cost us thousands of dollars just to pay for his uh, keynote address. And it was at that moment, as a relatively young Christian in ministry, that I realised you could get rich in gospel ministry. <laughs> I thought, whoa! And I immediately feel, feel, felt that pull. Is there some way that I can cash in on being a gospel teacher? Uh, do you know that at times, and I'm sort of, maybe this is too much information, I hope it's not, but I have to confess, there are times at which I thought, blow this student ministry stuff, I'm going to become an Anglican minister. <laughs> because <laughs> the package is a lot better and you don't have to raise your own support. I'm out of here. And uh, yeah, I mean, truly, it's actually, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pull, isn't it? I'd like a better car. I'd like to pay the bills a lot more easily. But I remember being pastored by John Piper as he talked about his own attitude towards money. This is what he says. He says, I never felt like, he never felt, I never felt, sorry, that I was the church's privilege, but that she is mine. To be at Bethlehem was gift, all gift. That was the church he pastored. The mindset that I am so valuable to deserve any benefits that come from my ministry is alien to the spirit of Christ. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus was absolutely indispensable in the ministry he came to achieve. And the whole orientation of it was give, 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 not get, get, get. My question is, says John Piper, why would a pastor want to get rich? And it hit me between the eyes. I'm a, I'm a man of modest income, but it doesn't exclude me from the love or coveting money and other people's wealth. And I remember finding that so helpful. There is a Christian leader miles ahead of me in terms of prestige, platform, and even potential earnings, and saying, why would you go into ministry? Or why would you want to get rich as a pastor? Flee from that stuff. You know, he's a prolific author. He has earned millions of dollars through his books. But he hasn't earned a cent of it. Do you know where it's all gone? It's gone straight back into Desiring God Ministries, which he doesn't run. He doesn't see a cent of the money earned from his books. The only money he ever earned as income was from his church. It was a stipend they paid him, which is a fairly modest pastor's income. That's all the money he ever earned. What an example to me. And Paul says to Titus, put these people in place. And I'm saying to you, CUers, seek after Christian mentors that can help you one another, one another, be examples to each other of how to follow Christ and make big, bold decisions which keep Christ as Lord in every area of your life. Another story about John Piper, which is um, a little bit, I'm not so sure about this, but which I think is helpful for us to hear. Another story about John Piper is his view of eldership in his particular church Bethlehem, when he was the pastor. They called for elders, you know, um, periodically. But one of the requirements for eldership, and this is a very particular specific thing, one of the requirements for eldership was that you couldn't have any current problem with pornography to be an elder. And uh, when I heard that, I thought, wow, that's pretty full on. A lot of Christians struggle with pornography. I don't think I'm telling Taz out of school to say the majority of men at some point would have struggled with pornography. It's not as though even currently struggling with pornography makes you not a Christian. That's an awful thing to ever say or to think. That's not true. If you're struggling with pornography here in this room tonight, you absolutely are in the right place. You can say Christ is Lord and still struggle with sins like that. Sin can be really hard to deal with. And that's a really, really tricky one to deal with. But he said you cannot be an elder if that struggle is current. And what I found challenging about that was, I'm not so sure if that applies, because I know some people who right now who I love, who I think are great Christian leaders, who would actually be disqualified from leadership. I'm not totally sure it should apply everywhere. It's challenging, but what I love about it is he's taking this seriously. Christians have to understand, and we have to model, that Christians do not need to sin. The normal trajectory and pattern for Christian living is to put off any sin which is obvious, put it off and put on the new. It says in Hebrews, no temptation has seized us, which is common to all people, and God provides a way out from under it, right? 
In James it says, God doesn't tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted. It's when your own sinful desires take root that you're led astray. Sin does not have to control a Christian. And we need to gather around people who can model and spur us on in that task. Uh, let, me hear, uh, let me end here. Um, another point here, it says in this passage, but we're not going to go there tonight. I might pick it up next week. I'm not sure. But it says, of course, verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Of course, it goes without saying, but we always need to say it, that exemplars of the faith, uh, faith, mentors, elders, need to be solid on the gospel. And we'll come back to that through the rest of the series. But tonight, I just want to emphasize the importance of character in our Christian leaders and our mentors. And uh, yeah, let, let me end with a bit of lightness. I remember when I was a kid, this is one of my favorite memories from, from when I was a child. When I was a kid, I went to the pool one day with a friend and one of our um, chief entertainment hubs, what I guess we would have called a water park back in the day, was a 50-metre pool with a 10-metre tower on it. That was it. That was our entertainment. Um, uh, for a couple of summers, I spent most days at the pool just mucking around with my friends. And uh, we would often see people going up onto the 10-metre tower and just jumping off. That open up to the public. Anyone could do it. And uh, me and my friend thought, we've got to get a piece of this action. looks like so much fun. We're just little kids. Um, and so one day we plucked up the courage. We'll go up. It looks just cool. And there's stacks of people. We're climbing up the steps. And about halfway up, I realised I'd bitten off more than I could chew. This is a long way up. And halfway up, the ladder had already felt like I could move, feel the tower moving in the wind. There's a lot of wind around that day. We got to the top of the tower. Everyone looked like ants down there. It was so high up. No one could even hear my voice, my screams for help. Get me out of here. It was very busy. There were people climbing up the ladder behind me, so it was impractical to try and get back down. And also, I wanted to save face. I was too, I was too proud. So there I'm thinking in my head, you know, one of those situations where you're thinking, there must be a third way. What's the third way? I could pretend I'm having a heart attack. Um, I don't know. I, I could say, look, fire, and then <laughs> run down the step. I don't know. What's the third way? I can't just admit I'm afraid and walk down, and I can't jump. In the wind, I was sure that what would happen if I jumped off the 10-minute tower is that I'd be blown across, miss the pool, and splat on the concrete. I, was, I could visualise it. I could see it happening. I thought, oh, this will end certainly in death. I was there with my mate, and we're both freaking out. And all these older kids are running off and we're discussing what we're going to do, what is the third way. And then it felt like just midway through conversation, my friend saw a gap and he just turned around and he ran. And I thought, my gosh, I can't believe that just happened. That was the last moment I saw my friend. Oh, no, I didn't. That was fine. <laughs> I went over. I went over and I looked down. And he's down, down the bottom, of course, celebrating. I went, Woo! And I realised that's what you've got to do. you just got to do it. And so I did the same. I just, before I could overthink it, I just ran and hoped for the best. And of course it was all fine. I mean, it took 12 months of physio and stuff to get back to, <laughs> to walking. But the point is, is that you can't, you can't do this by yourself. 
That's the point. That's the light illustration landing. You can't, you can't do this by yourself. I met a Christian in a camp once who was, was a, a builder uh, from Tasmania. He'd spent his life just you know, building houses, accumulated you know, um, you know, quite a lot of wealth and built up this really cool business. And at about 45, he just said, okay, now I'm going to turn my energy towards uh, building and establishing orphanages in India. What? I'd never heard of such a thing. A deeply convinced, lovely Christian man who it just seems so natural to him to go, yep, okay, you know, I've, I've looked after my family, I've done my, my working thing, I don't, I don't need to be doing this anymore. What's the best thing I could be doing for the gospel? Well, why don't I go over somewhere? I don't, they had some sort of connection, right, with India. Why, go, why don't I go over there and help them build and establish orphanages? Christian ones at that. And he kept on going backwards and forth trying to help them to establish all these orphanages. I thought, this blows my mind. Do Christians really do that? Yes, they do. They run a job. They just do it. I've heard, of, I've heard of another Christian which I found really inspiring. I'm sorry that the money's theme, it's not that big a deal. But I heard another Christian once being interviewed, a Christian leader, and saying, you know, we started off giving 10%. My ambition with my life is that by the time I die, we're giving away 90% of what we earn every year. That's my aim. That's what we're aiming for. We want to give more and more and more so that we keep on growing that generosity muscle. This blew my mind. What? There's such a thing as giving more than 10%? There's such a thing as, 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 as having your ambition in life to give away 90% of what you earn? Yes. Christians do this kind of stuff. And they're real and they're alive and they're out there and they really believe Christ is Lord and they model for us what it means to live a godly, holy, upright life. We need mentors. We need to one another, one another. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.